Hi, everyone. Um, as Paul said, our first reading this evening is from Psalm 119, starting from verse 57. It's on page 559. So starting from verse 57. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I have sought your favour with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I thought about my ways and turned my steps back to your decrees. I hurried, not hesitating to keep your commands. Though the ropes of the wicked were wrapped around me, I did not forget your instruction. I rise at midnight to thank you for your righteous judgments. I am a friend to all who fear you, to those who keep your precepts. Lord, the earth is filled with your faithful love. Teach me your statutes. Lord, you have treated your servant well, just as you promised. Teach me good judgment and discernment, for I rely on your commands. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good, and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. The arrogant have smeared me with lies, but I obey your precepts with all my heart. Their hearts are hard and insensitive, but I delight in your instruction. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. Instruction from your lips is better for me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The second reading is from 1 Timothy Timothy 3. It's on page 1091. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, an able teacher, not addicted to wine, not a bully but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy, one who manages his his own household competently, having his children under control with all dignity. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and fall into condemnation of the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders, so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And they must also be tested first. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. Deacons must be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves, and great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to act in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, 
preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight we're thinking about a church. Uh, When I say the word church, please don't think uh, a building, please don't think denomination. When I say the word church, uh, we're supposed to think people who are loved by Jesus, people who are marked by grace, people who are living for Jesus. It's, it's God's people who are gathered together. doesn't matter where you are, that is God's church. And when I say the word church, I don't know what springs to your mind, but when I say the word church in the world, most of the world kind of laughs at the church, or they snigger at the church, or they scoff at the church. Let's be really honest, the church has got a pretty bad image in the world. And it's never a surprise, is it? You know, when you see uh, headlines like, Bishop found guilty of abusing young boys in the church, doesn't that make you weep? When you hear stories of a Sydney Anglican pastor who has multiple affairs with women in his congregation. Doesn't that make you weep? When you hear stories of church leaders who are found guilty of fraud and bullying and spiritual abuse, doesn't that make you want to weep? In the UK a few years ago, the, the Anglican church in the UK decided it needed an image makeover. So they spent millions of pounds, millions of pounds, this PR exercise to try and boost the numbers in church. So they had new logos, they had a new color scheme, they have a new brand. But what happened? Numbers kept declining. Because church isn't about images and logos and branding and color schemes. Church is about the people, isn't it? And as long as the people who claim to be God's church continue to live the hypocritical, godless lives, then no wonder people scoff at God's church. You see, it matters how we live, doesn't it? It matters how we live as God's people. We're supposed to be shining as a light for Jesus in the world. I mean, most people that you work with will probably never walk through these doors but they'll see you and they'll watch you. We're kind of like a walking, talking advertisement for the gospel of Jesus. You know, God loves his church. God's church is really precious to him. And so when I hear stories from the Royal Commission, I do literally weep. When I hear stories of people who have been so hurt by God's church. A church by the bridge has often been described as a, as a hospital for hurting Christians. Who do you think they've been hurt by? The church. Uh, leaders who abused them. Men and women who manipulated and bullied them. Other Christians who damaged them. I've got a good friend who 
is still a believer, but finds church really, really hard because of the damage done to him by church leaders. God loves his church. God's church is precious to him, but it matters how we live. You see, the problem in Ephesus where this church was, was there was leaders there who were living godless lives. And leaders there who were teaching deviant doctrine. See that in chapter 6, verse 3? If anyone teaches other doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the teaching that promotes godliness... He is conceited, understanding nothing, has a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words, and from these come envy and quarreling and slander and evil suspicions and constant disagreement. Isn't that a horrific picture of the church? Envy, quarreling, slander, speculation, foolishness, frictions and factions. See, the church in Ephesus was no different from the world, so what the world did, the church did. What the world taught, the church taught. And that grieves our Heavenly Father. Did you notice how how Paul describes or defines God's church in chapter 3, our chapter tonight? Just think back to verse 14. It's the clearest statement in his letter as to why Paul is writing. Uh, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But he didn't. He didn't get there. But if I should be delayed, which he was, I've written so you will know how the people ought to act in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And that's the purpose of this letter. Paul wants to write to the church to tell them how to conduct themselves in God's household. And he's not talking about whether we have drums in church or whether people raise their hands in church. He doesn't really care about that. But he does care about our conduct. He does care about how we live. Because the word for God's household in verse 15 is literally God's family. That's the picture of the church. We are God's family, God's brothers and God's sisters gathered together as God's household. We are the church of the living God, verse 15, because God isn't dead and neither is his church. Or verse 15 again, we are the pillar and foundation of the truth. The bastion of truth. When I read that phrase this week, it it kind of shocked me because I expect him to say that the truth is the pillar and foundation of the church. That's true, isn't it? The truth is the foundation of the church and truth is the pillar of the church. He doesn't say that. He turns it around and says the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. He's saying, we, the people gathered, we're called to to hold up the truth. We're called to protect the truth and defend the truth and guard the truth and teach the truth. And as we hold up the truth, we hold out the truth to a world that desperately needs to hear about Jesus. You see, when we don't live godly lives, we don't hold up the truth, do we? When we live godless lives, we don't hold out the truth. And if I've understood verse 16 rightly, that's exactly what the church is here for. To hold up the truth and to hold out the truth. See that in verse 16, Paul bursts into a song or a hymn. We don't know what the tune was. 
But he says, he was manifested in the flesh. Who's he talking about there? Jesus. And so Jesus stepped into our world. He took on flesh. And Jesus was vindicated in the spirit. That is, uh, at his baptism, he was declared to be the son of God. He was empowered by the spirit. At his resurrection, he was vindicated in the spirit. He was seen by angels because he ascended into heaven. The first three lines are all about Jesus, aren't they? His incarnation, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. But look at the next three lines. Who are the next three lines all about? Jesus was preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. When does that happen? How is Jesus preached today? By the church. How do people believe in Jesus today? By the church. So on that last day, when Jesus returns, there'll be many, many believers taken up into glory. And Paul is saying here that, that Jesus is not here anymore, but we're here, indwelt by his Spirit, empowered by his Spirit to be the church that God calls us to be, to hold up the truth, to hold out the truth. God's church is so precious to him, he calls it his bride, his body, his flock, his temple, his household, his family. And that's why it matters how we behave. See, we're not talking about a company that might go through hard times. We're not talking about a club whose membership might drop. We're talking about souls. We're talking about the church. We're talking about Lost men and women being found for Jesus. We're talking about men and women of faith who grow in their faith. We're talking about souls that matter to God. And God in his wisdom has, called, has, has asked the church, his people, to hold up the truth by the way that we live and to hold out the truth by the way that we conduct ourselves. And so when the, when the character and the behavior of the church is so horrendous and so worldly and so godless. Truth is at stake, isn't it? And when the character and behavior of church leaders, men and women who are supposed to lead God's church, when it is so horrendous and so worldly and so godless, truth is at stake. It does make me weep when I hear of a hospital for hurting Christians who've been damaged by God's church. So how is the church going to hold up the truth and hold out the truth? And the answer is by godly leadership. Can I say right up front, it's very hard for me to preach on this chapter. I feel like I'm holding a mirror to myself. I feel like you're staring at me and sort of evaluating me as I preach on this chapter. Uh, Paul talks about two orders within the church, the overseers and the deacons. The Good News Bible says church leaders and church helpers. Let me ask you a question. I'm about to go on long service leave. I, I leave in seven weeks' time. I'll be away for three months. What, what happens if I don't come back? I'm planning on coming back, <laughs> trust me. But if I don't come back... Who do you want to appoint for your new rector? What kind of person are you going to look for? What qualities are you going to look for in your new leader? 
See, see, my fear is that so often the church is just like the world and they just bring in all the business mentality. We look for the, the organisational gurus and the academic high flyers and the people of vision and strategy and leadership and we look for the people who can uh, do everything and achieve everything. Is that what Paul lists here? Is that the qualifications? I find it ironic that the heading in the Holman Bible is qualifications of church leaders. It's not qualifications, is it? It's actually qualities. It's actually character traits. It's, you're looking for the person of integrity and morality. You're looking for the person whose character is beyond question. And I love the fact here there's no job description for the elder. There's no systems on how you appoint an elder, whether it's a membership vote or whether you show your hand or whether you interview people. He doesn't really care about that. But he does care about the character of your elders. Uh, you see, you can have the best website, the best music, the best uh, building, the best equipment. But if the, the men who lead you are godless and worldly, then truth is at stake. And the shock when I read these verses this week, I was looking at them with me in verse 2. Above reproach, husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, not addicted to wine, not a bully but gentle. The shock there is that there's nothing really exceptional about those qualities, are they? Isn't there, aren't they the kind of character traits you want to see in every believer? Self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable. And that's the point. The point is that if your leaders aren't like this, then the church has no chance. If you're led by men who are not self-controlled and not sensible and not respectable and not hospitable, we should never expect God's church to be like that. If you're looking for a job description, the only verse that comes near is in verse 5. And here's a top tip on reading your Bibles. If a verse is in brackets, it's often quite important. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? Isn't that a job description? Taking care of God's church. That'd be great to have on business cards, wouldn't it? Paul Dell, pastor, taking care of God's church. That's what I'm called to do. Care for your souls. Make sure that you're loving Jesus more. Make sure you're living more like Jesus. So what kind of overseer or overseers do you want? I think these verses apply to all people who teach and watch over you and care for you and protect this, your souls. It's me, it's Dan, it's Simon, it's Andy, it's, it's your hive leaders who are actually given responsibility to care for the souls of the people in their group. What kind of people are we looking for? Well, he must be above reproach, both with the insider and with the outsider. See, verses 2 and 7 kind of bookends this, this section. Uh, verse 2, an overseer, an elder, must be above reproach, beyond questioning, beyond accusation. Uh, so no one inside the church can point the finger at this man and say, he's a hypocrite, he's a liar. Oh, he stands up in church on a Sunday, but you should see the way he lives on a Monday. 
verse 7, he must have a good reputation among outsiders. It's an incurability. It will be woeful if they say, oh, he stands and preaches on a Sunday, but on a Monday night he's down at the Kirby Hotel getting absolutely tanked every Monday night. The point is that the way he lives is beyond questioning, is above reproach, both with those inside the church and those outside of the church. I'm not saying they have to be faultless or perfect, but we need to be blameless and above questioning especially in our marriages, if we are married. You see that in verse 2? He must be above reproach, and he starts with your marriages, the husband of one wife. Why do you think first on his list is our marriages? Why does he start with marital faithfulness? I'm guessing because marital unfaithfulness was as much of a problem then as it is today. I'm guessing because the damage done by men who commit adultery and have affairs and flirt with all these women in the church caused as much damage then as it does today. I've watched firsthand the, the damage done by a leader who has committed adultery and the, the impact that had on believers in that church. A leadership journal, a Christian journal, asked ministers this question. Listen to this question. Since you've been involved in local church ministry, have you ever done anything with somebody, not your spouse, that was sexually inappropriate? What was the response? A staggering 23% said yes. That's almost one in four people. And that's just those who are honest. I mean, during a two-year period in the U.S., 10% of pastors resigned over sexual misconduct. You see, you want a man who is faithful, the husband of one wife. And I don't think that phrase excludes single men from being elders. I really grapple with that. I was single till I was 40. You know, Paul himself was single. 1 Corinthians 7 promotes singleness. I think he's just saying, if you are married, make sure you're faithful in your marriage. The husband of one wife, not many wives, not flirting, not committing adultery. So you want a man who loves his wife, who is committed to his wife, who confides in his wife and his wife alone. And that is profoundly countercultural, isn't it? You see, the damage done when people are unfaithful in their marriage is profound. Church is full of people who have been hurt and emotionally damaged by affairs. And church leaders should be a model of marital faithfulness. What does that mean? It means that if a man has been unfaithful in marriage, he is not suitable for the office of an overseer. Of course there's forgiveness, of course there's forgiveness. But he shouldn't be leaving a church. Now, I don't know whether you pray for me. I do hope you pray for me. Can I ask you to pray for my marriage? Please pray. 
I've got a very good marriage. But please pray for faithfulness all my days till death is depart. Above reproach in self-control, verse 2. Clear-minded. Disciplined. Learning to control his emotions and his mind and his body. Sensible in thought and in action. Respectable, a man of dignity. What people see, what people notice, they respect him. Hospitable. When you see the word hospitable, please don't think, oh, he has lots of people around for dinner. The word hospitable means that he loves the stranger. He, he welcomes the stranger into his home. And my fear today is that many church leaders are, are separating their, their work life and their home life. But the biblical model is that the two are intertwined. You, know, you share the whole of you. No secrets. He must be, not be addicted to wine, verse 3. So his drinking habits should be under control. No one should see him and say, he's got a problem with alcohol. Uh, I was challenged recently by a, an unbelieving friend of mine who, who made a comment that the drinking habits of the Christians that he knew were no different to the drinking habits of the unbelievers. That is sad, isn't it? Now, I'm not saying that leaders shouldn't drink, but I am saying we need to be above reproach in our attitude towards alcohol. We'll look at the next phrase, not a bully, but gentle. You ever met those people who lash out with their words? They batter people with harsh words or acidic words. They intentionally crush people. They bully people. You see, when you're up front and you're teaching regularly, you can easily abuse people and bully people and manipulate people. You don't want that type of leader, do you? Don't you want somebody, verse 3, who is gentle? And by that word gentle, please don't think wimp. He's a gentleman. He's kind. He's loving. He's reasonable. Oh, he's willing to say the hard things, but with gentleness and with compassion. And if sex and temper are problems in the church. The other one is money, isn't it? That's why he says in verse 3, not greedy. It's easy for the overseer to fall into that trap to you know, abuse the perks and covet possessions and to manipulate so people give him more money. What does 1 Timothy 6 say? That the love of money is, is, a, is a very dangerous thing. So no one should look at your overseers and say, wow, he really lives for money. Now you build up the picture that this person is, is not your visionary, your strategist, your organizational guru. He's not your flashy, boastful, dominant city slicker. He's a man who's faithful in his marriage, orderly in his life, hospitable, sober, gentle, and generous. And you know, the watching world might not agree with what we teach, but they look at their life and go, well, he's a man of integrity. I respect him for that. That's his character. What's the, what's the one quality, the one skill in this list? Did you spot it? It's there at the end of verse 2, isn't it? A man of moral integrity who is able to teach. 
it doesn't say in verse 2, eager to teach. There's lots of people who are eager to teach, who want to teach. Is, is he able to teach? Lots of people who have great Bible knowledge who just can't teach the Bible. Why is, it, why is a teaching of the Bible important? Because we're upholding the truth and we're holding out the truth. So if the man can't teach the truth, we've got no hope, have we? I went to Bible college in the, the uh, late or the mid-90s. It's almost 20 years ago, isn't it? I went in the age where there was this kind of this trend that everybody should go into full-time paid ministry. And so the Bible College was packed with people training for full-time paid ministry. Uh, I was at a college with a guy called Gavin. He's a godly man. He's a wonderful husband. He's a great businessman. He has extraordinary Bible knowledge. He can run rings around me theologically. He just can't teach the Bible. You ever met those people? You stand up and you think, they know lots, but I just don't understand the word he's saying. And so after four years of Bible college, Gavin goes into a parish, and what happens? Sunday by Sunday, he's standing up to teach, and he himself is just being crushed. And the church is being crushed as well, because he just can't teach the Bible. It's all about being a brilliant communicator. It's making sure you're teaching the truth ably. So, so you've met the man, you've watched his character, you've listened to the sermon tape. Is that the man to lead the church and care for the flock? No, not yet. Look at his family, meet his wife, meet his kids. Because he must be able to lead his family well. See that connection in verse 4? One who manages his own household competently, having his children under control with all dignity. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? And the answer is he can't. He's kind of saying the overseer has two families. He has his own family. He has God's family. And so look at the way he manages his own family to see how he's going to control God's family. And You're not, you're not looking for the, the dictatorial leader. You're looking for the loving leader so questions like, does this man lead his family well? Does he lead them in the way of the truth? Does he love his wife? Does he love his kids? Does he care for them? Are they walking the ways of the Lord? I know lots of church leaders' families who resent the church because dad spent all the time at the church not leading the family. I'm very late to the whole marriage and kids thing. I became a father at 40 to a five-year-old, immediately to a five-year-old. I learned quickly. It's very easy to get your kids to obey you with resentment. It's easy to get your kids to obey you with resistance. It's really hard to get your kids to obey you with respect. And isn't that what you want? the man whose kids respect them. They, they might not always agree with what their dad says, but they actually respect them, even in the teenage years. They might not like the curfew times, but they know that dad loves them and dad cares for them. One person said this, any man unable to govern his children graciously is no man to lead God's church. 
and any man unable to lead his kids gravely by maintaining discipline in the home is no man to lead God's church. So please don't just pray for my marriage. Can you pray for my family as well? Pray for the way that I lead and love my three boys. That I might lead them in godliness and truth. So you watch the character, you listen to the sermon tape, you've met the wife, you've met the kids. Is this the person to oversee God's church? No, not yet. Look at verse 6. He must be spiritually mature. He mustn't be a new convert. Or he might become conceited and fall into condemnation of the devil. If he's a new convert in leadership, if he's pushed too quickly, he becomes proud and conceited. He's a know-it-all. And pride in God's church is very damaging. When I read that verse, I think of a, a guy called Neil, who was a, a member of my church in Oxford. Neil had been a Christian for just two months. Just two months. When he was made a, a youth group leader. You see, the problem with Neil was that he was a gifted teacher and everyone liked him and the youth loved him but his bible knowledge was woeful how can you correct error when you've just been a christian for two months how can you teach the bible when you've been a christian for two months but he led the youth group and a year later went to bible college and three years later was ordained so less than four years after he became a christian he's leading a church and what happened to neil Two things happen. The wheels fell off because there was all this sin in his life that hadn't been dealt with, had never been dealt with, because no one actually bothered to watch his life and doctrine. He was just a great speaker, a great entertainer, a great leader. And the second issue, the big issue was pride. Massive pride issues. You know, when you stand up in front of a church every week, it's easy to become very proud. I've grown a church. I've grown this. I've done this. I've done this. It's not about you. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel, isn't it? So please choose a humble, mature man. I'm sure you all know people who are fervent in their early days as Christians. They soak up everything. They read every book. They talk to everyone about Jesus. They want to serve. They want to help. And the temptation is to push those people into leadership far too quickly. So who are you looking for? Are you for your overseers? If you do pray, if you do pray for me, pray for my marriage, pray for my family, but would you also pray for my character and my godliness? Please don't just pray for the tasks that I do or the sermons that I write. Pray for my character, my integrity, my humility. Pray for our hive leaders, for their character, for their integrity, for their humility. Serious role to oversee God's church, isn't it? When it's done well, we hold up the truth, we hold out the truth. When it's done badly, it's a train wreck, isn't it? 
and souls are damaged. Now, but not everyone will be an elder, will they? Not everyone's an overseer. So as we close more briefly, there's another office here. It's called the deacons. See that in verse 8? There's literally a servant, servants in God's church. That's the word for deacons, a slave or a servant. A deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking lots of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be tested first. Don't know for how long, but watch their life, watch their doctrine, look at their character, look at their marriages. If they prove blameless, then they can serve as the deacons. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderous, self-controlled and faithful in everything. I actually think in verse 11 he's talking about female deacons. Why do I think that? Uh, the word for deacon is actually a neuter word. It's not masculine, it's not feminine, it's just a neuter. And the word for wife in verse 11 is literally just woman. Woman or women. Uh, so why would he highlight the wives of the deacons and not the, not the wives of the overseers? I think he's just saying male deacons and female deacons make sure that you're godly and mature and wise. So the deacons in our church are just the, the men and the women who serve, who, who do things in the church so that the word ministry can happen, so that I can prepare sermons and I can pastor and I can preach because people are serving. I am deeply, deeply thankful for the deacons in this church. Our, our men and our women in our, on our parish council who do the property and do the finance and do the policies and uh, the people who put out the chairs, the people who do the pro and do the sound desk, the people who do the rosters and all these sort of these tasks that have to be done. And they do it with joy and with gladness because they just want to serve God's church. Uh, someone said to me once, people should be deacons before they're named deacons. That's good, isn't it? Look out for people who are just servant-hearted, who are just getting on with the ministry, not looking for praise, not wanting to be upfront. And again, pray that God would raise up more deacons for our church. So that's God's church. There's overseers, there's deacons. It's more about your character than it is your competency. But why does all this matter? Why does it matter how God's church is led? Why? Because God loves his church, doesn't he? We're to uphold the truth and we're to hold out the truth. See, these verses are not just about me. It's not holding a mirror to me as a pastor. You're supposed to hold a mirror to yourself. Because the overseers lead the church to be like this. And so when you read the words above reproach, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. You're supposed to look at yourself and say, is that me? Is that my life? See, it grieves God and it grieves me. You know, when, a, when a church damages believers, when people wander from the faith because of the lives of church people, by the misconduct of church leaders. What's the heartbeat of our God? He wants all people to be saved. And
and he uses us, his church. So please watch your life. Please look at your character. And please pray for godly leadership in God's church. Let me pray. Oh Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. Lord, please keep on doing a a transforming work in our lives to chip away at all the ways that our character is not pleasing to you. If we lack self-control, give us self-control. If we're not sensible, make us sensible. If we struggle with faithfulness in our marriages, make us faithful. If we struggle with alcohol, give us a a resistance there and self-control there. Forgive us for times when we lash out with our words and we're not gentle. Help us please to be a family, a body, a household that holds up the truth and holds out the truth. I plead with you in Jesus' name.